0: Westminster School, the school I attended, believed in fagging.
1: No, 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 stop! Just say Westminster. We know that you attended Westminster School. This is all about. We don't.
0: We don't know about Westminster School. If this is cold, we don't know what Westminster is.
1: But because you're going to be in the first person, so they know that you're. It's going to be. Why
0: why can't I say Westminster School in?
1: I would say Westminster School believed in fagging. I attended there as a five-year-old. In England, as a five-year-old. The powerful intro sentence is a statement. <laughs> Westminster School believed in fagging.
0: Now you're rewriting everything. It's
1: well, you're rewriting it too. It's kind of
0: neurotic. I just wanted to identify it as a school.
1: It's not as poetic a, for as an a, intro. As
0: opposed to a, uh, you know, an, an IT company.
1: Westminster School, that does it. Just say Westminster well, School. That's what I did. Okay, I'm going to stop The text
0: this. doesn't say school.
1: Okay, do it your way.
0: Okay. Westminster School believed in fagging. The school did not invent it, but successive headmasters thought it a fine way of controlling boys. They started out as slaves and then in a very few years graduated to become monitors and fagmasters with great powers over younger boys, powers that included corporal punishment and the right to settle almost all issues. We were objects of desire, especially those of us with smooth skin, sexual, or at least romantic favours were sometimes demanded in exchange for fagging points, which you had to earn 200 of in order to be released from bondage. The word fag has multiple meanings derived from the Latin noun fascis, meaning kindling wood it can describe a cigarette, an old crone or in America a gay youth. At school it meant you were half a slave and half a hustler. If you lock boys up without privacy or women, and if life outside class and church is run along juvenile lines without any close supervision by adults, what happens? A great deal of sexual horseplay and some serious male love. The terms of art favoured in my day, in Rigo's, the house where I was, were pufter and queer. Underdeveloped for my age, no pubic hair, an unbroken voice, small and slim, I was an object of desire, one of the house tarts. Demands for a kiss were common. Jealous after failing to make patent hair restorer render my nether parts sufficiently manly, I goaded a boy in the showers. Walker, you're a hairy ape like Esau, I said. You've got black hair sprouting from your ass, and even thick tufts of it on your back and bum. He punched me, and I fell hard to the floor. We compared our cocks. We measured them. We had no shame. We masturbated alone and in company. We masturbated each other, often coldly without feeling, but sometimes with emotion. Sometimes we felt a pang of love. One night in Longdorm, where I slept with 15 other 15-year-olds, there was a rumpus well after lights out and no talking. Half the iron beds were empty, the other half occupied by couples in various gymnastic and romantic contortions. It was a schoolboy orgy in the dark, a latter-day Roman satiricon. Suddenly, the door at the end burst open and the lights went on. It was Frank Kilmington, our housemaster. He lived on the other side. We froze. He stood there, surveying the scene, scratching his ear for an eternity. No one breathed. Does this go on every night, he finally asked. Yes, quite often, sir someone said thought so less noise please get to sleep good night the lights went out and he returned to his family on the far side of the door i had a schoolboy lover a constant companion a protector a year older than me he smelled good and was good to me one of the loves of my life actually we sometimes shared a bed fiercely intelligent leslie tucker the dashing son of a royal navy officer who had been killed on D-Day, a few months before Leslie's birth, gave me a book to read which blew me away. Corridone, by the French Nobel Prize winner André Gide, published in 1924, arguing that homosexuality is natural, or not unnatural, and that it pervades the most culturally and artistically advanced civilizations. He cites examples from Homer and Shakespeare to insist that homosexual love is more fundamental and normal than heterosexual love, which he believed to be a false injunction, artificially imposed by a repressed society. Gide left a permanent intellectual mark on me. Were we gay? Truth is, we didn't know. We simply yearned to know as we marinated ourselves in each other's hormones. Strangely we were inhibited, even so. It was mainly kissing, cuddling, and mutual masturbation. Pretty tame. It was not so much about raw sex as about tender love. However, on the last day of school, I plucked up all my courage to tell Leslie I never wanted to see him again. I suppose I was scared of becoming trapped in his magnetic orbit. On the other hand, Alec Melville, who went on to become a rich, bibulous, epileptic solicitor, remained my closest friend and confidant for many happy years, until one sad day, after a particularly alcoholic lunch near his office, he was mowed down in his 50s by a red double-decker London bus.
1: Let's go to the moment in your life where you you, not only do you break up with your first lover, but you kick him out of your life forever. Your memoir is about the formation of identity. It seems to me like in that moment, the energy of being, the erotic energy that you are born with, which has found a form, you regard the form as being unacceptable to you or unhelpful to you as you move into the next step of your formation, and you reject it, and you I reject think, him. I, th- I think I rejected it. I had a hard
0: time rejecting him. Do you know I never met him again? I never saw him again. Alec Melville, my other friend, tried to get us together later in life, quite a few years later, actually. But it never happened. Was Melville a lover too? No. He was just a friend. Melville was a friend, not a lover. But he was also on the fringes of gaydom. He was sort of, you know, interested in boys.
1: But you all were.
0: Yeah, we all were. While you guys were
1: doing this, this was a crime in the United Kingdom. It
0: was, although actually while we were doing this, there was a huge debate going on in Britain about reforming the law and making uh, homosexual acts between consenting adults legal. And there was a commission set up, the Wolfenden Report was produced, and it recommended the decriminalization of homosexual acts between consenting adults. We all read the Wolfenden Report. We were
1: fascinated by it. What happened that homosexual love, which had been rightly embraced in antiquity, was all of a sudden criminal in the late British Empire? Well, it wasn't the late
0: British Empire. It had always been criminal in England, as far back as a long way back, because it was regarded as unnatural. I don't know, I think it's the Christian church that made it so. It's
1: Catholicism. It's yes. like Catholic residue. Yes,
0: I don't think, I mean the Romans and the Greeks regarded it as part of life. The Romans didn't even have a word for homosexuality. There's no Latin word. There just was. There just was sex. And there were sexual you know, acts that would, took place between men and men and men and women. And it was not regarded as a crime. It's interesting though, that in the antique world, In the Greek world and the Roman world, homosexuality was really confined to the upper classes. The plebs, the ordinary people, the hoi polloi, disapproved of it. Why is that? I think it has something to do with the fact that one party in the act of sex between two men is actually the female. One is the penetrator and one is penetrated. And among the working classes in Rome and Greece, the idea of being effeminate was very offensive,
1: because their masculinity was barely functioning each day as they were exploited in the marketplace. And well, if, e- you at, if you economy. look at if you look at if
0: you look at the macho culture of America, something similar does apply here too. There is a terrible fear among blue-collar and ordinary Americans of being thought to be among males, rather to be thought to be effeminate. You have to be a real man, you have to be a warrior, you have to be brave, you can't cry, all those things. So being a a receiver in the homosexual sense is actually a terribly threatening idea.
1: At least in their minds and in a system of exploitations, you can imagine how a a lower class male might not have masculinity to spare, at least in his own neurotic mind.
0: That may be, that may be. But it's certainly true that in the Roman and Greek times, In Roman and Greek times, homosexuality was not uh, regarded as
1: a crime. It was certainly a virtue.
0: It was well, not necessarily a virtue in some cases, maybe, but not. I called you last
1: night. I was fascinated to I was researching Sparta and the Spartans were a slave society, seven to one oligarchic. They were as as toxically male as you can imagine. And when you have a seven to one agrarian slave society, you have, of course, endless time to, to get good at fighting. And so in the Peloponnesian War, nobody could march against the Spartan phalanx, and uh, there was a great Theban intellectual turned general who said he had one good idea of how to maybe beat the Spartans, and it was the sacred band who were a regiment not, not only of men who loved men, but of, in fact, couples. And the general, his theory was you'll fight really hard for your lover because you want him to live, and also, you know, you, want, you care about how he sees you. And the sacred band actually was able to smash the Spartan veterans. Gay love was the one thing that could overcome Spartan militarism in antiquity.
0: Well, that is fascinating. I, I mean, it may, I'm sure it's true, although there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, Xenophon was the first to write about it. But the truth is, you know, uh, in the 19th century... Certainly, Uh, there was a cult of masculinity in Britain. The cult of masculinity was dead set against gay love. At the same time, in the English public schools, which rose to their prominence in the 19th century, they were really a mechanism to bring the sons of businessmen into the gentleman club, because the aristocracy were the gentlemen, and the sons of the new rich, the nouveau riche, were thought to be in need of you know, some tutoring in
1: how to be a gentleman. And the public schools wear that transmission belt. There's two distinct schools of male tailoring. One is the Italian shoulder, which is soft, i.e. whatever your shoulder is, the Italian tailor is going to just try to get some fabric on it and drape it. And then there's the British soldier, which has its roots in the empire. And it's fake. It is a yep. padded shoulder, and so who someone has observed the job of a tailored british soldier is, is to make sure that if a captain drinks way too much gin at lunch in a colony and vomits or pees himself or passes out viewed from behind he's still very strong and on the job well, that's interesting <laughs> there's I mean, a fraudulent trumped up masculinity that is almost required by the pageantry of an empire that's based on bluffs
0: i don't know whether that's entirely true but i do know Italian men were regarded as women in England. Uh, Similarly, almost all Mediterranean men, Spanish men, Portuguese men, they were regarded as effeminate. The British cultivated toxic masculinity and then transmitted it to the WASP upper classes in America.
1: Was this born of inferiority? Was this born of, of, of the bluff of empire?
0: Much more to do with the bluff of empire, was nothing to do with inferiority. The British did not regard themselves as inferior to the Italians,
1: who were opera singers and, and, you know, crybabies, and were no good at war. This is a memoir of identity, and it's Halloween, which is a a holiday of masks. Do you view yourself as someone who was able to get in touch with a gay side for a period of your life? Was it a mask that you wore in an environment of fagging, quote unquote, where like, that was what was being done, so it was an element of yourself that you had to find or create to survive? Like, how do, you, how do you understand the natural and the artificial in this formative early love experience?
0: Not only was it not a mask, really, I mean, it was an experiment. I mean, we didn't know what we were, but we. I have to tell you that being gay and being homosexual culturally, not just physically, was the coolest thing to be. We read, you know, Ronald Furback, we read Oscar Wilde. We read, you know, uh, Corrie as I said. We read all sorts of gay literature. Uh, I was handed by my boyfriend, Leslie Tucker, reams of books that basically were about homosexuality. There was a famous English novel called The Loom of Youth, published, I think, in 1918 by Evelyn Waugh's brother, Alec Waugh which is about his public school, Sherbourne, the same school that John le Carré went to, by the way. And he writes about gay love in Sherbourne. I mean, his hero has a brief fling with another boy. It was very shocking. I mean, it caused a huge riot in England. It was a bestseller, but it was also regarded as wicked and wrong. But it was very cool. And yet this
1: was ubiquitous.
0: Well, I I don't know that it was ubiquitous. Not all boys at Westminster were gay. Not all boys entered into this experiment. It wasn't universal. I would say we were a minority. Actually. So the Roman
1: orgy was just like a special night. That wasn't every night? No. No, okay.
0: And even if it was every night, it wasn't every boy. There was a boy called Gawthorne, who came from Kenya, now Kenya, whose father was in the colonial office. And he came to the school rather late in life when he was, I don't know, 14. And he had a bed in that same dormitory, long dorm. And he claimed when he arrived that masturbation was evil and would actually result in madness and death. He skipped right over Harry palms to madness so, and death. So we said, right, Sonny Boy, you have been, you know, marked. And every night we would organize a patrol. The, the floor was linoleum, so it was very smooth. And we had pajamas on, so you couldn't hear us as we crawled like the Viet Cong it's
1: like Lord of the Flies
0: through the dormitory. And we would position ourselves underneath Gawthorne's bed. <laughs> and we did this every night for a period of time. And one night, it wasn't me, somebody else was under his bed when we heard a little squeak. Because these beds were iron beds, so it went ew. And then it went, ew, ew. And then it went ew 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 went, ew ew. 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 And then we jumped up, switched the lights on, and pulled his bedclothes off, and he was jerking off.
1: And you said, you do not practice what you preach, Corthorne. Correct. Correct. You're a hypocrite.
0: Correct. But, so, but he wasn't gay. He was very, very old-fashioned because he came from the colonies. He was brought up in Africa. His father was actually a district commissioner, English civil servant, who was murdered by the Mau Mau eventually.
1: Um, you and I just finished reading John le Carre's most recent and last novel silverview which i think is a fascinating book because it uses the tropes of the spy novel to mock and question spycraft itself and also reveals maybe what he was doing all along with i think is one sentence where he says that the masks that people wear in a marriage are every bit as deceiving and necessary as the covers that they use in the field
0: all right well i mean i think john le Carre was the greatest english novelist of the second half of the 20th century. And I think his project was betrayal, basically, also love, but his basic project was betrayal. He felt betrayed by his country. He, drafted, he was drafted into this secret service. He was in MI5 and MI6. He was, he was His first incarnation, he was interviewing Nazis who were captured uh, and trying to turn them into anti-Nazis or good Germans or good Austrians. And then Britain turned on a dime. The Cold War began, and suddenly the British project, instead of being anti-Nazi, was actually to rehabilitate these same people and turn them into anti-Russian spies. And his job became the job of turning former German Nazis, very senior Nazis in some cases, into Cold War spies, working for the British and the Americans, Mm. and he felt that to be a betrayal, and he felt that England from then on was a morally squalid country that had betrayed itself and betrayed him. And he taught the English, those who read him, about the ruling class. He taught them about the, the wily ways of the ruling class, the dishonest, the masks, as you call them, and all the other things that went on in Britain from the 1950s onwards to try and make a case for Britain still being a relevant and important nation.
1: But you didn't know this when you were graduating high school.
0: Well, after Suez, which was a disaster for Britain, everybody in my uh, circle thought Britain had become somewhat ridiculous. Britain still had pomposity. It still had self-importance. It still had governments that talked as though they were the equal of the Washington government, they still talked as though we were a great power. We but were, we didn't think we were. You all knew you weren't.
1: Yeah. Because a great power doesn't get told what to do in the Suez Canal.
0: Correct. So, I mean, funnily enough, very shortly after I left Westminster, uh, Alec Melville, my best friend, his father was the British ambassador in Bonn, Germany, in the West German uh, Federal Republic of Germany. And I was invited by the Melville family to spend Christmas with them in 1962, which was the year I graduated from high school. And so I went to Bonn and I stayed with them for a week over Christmas. And during the course of my stay there, Sir Alec Melville, his father, gave a little dinner party for me. And he of course invited, it was very easy for him, people from the embassy, he didn't have to go very far. So he invited people over whom he he was he was the boss, you know. He invited them for, for dinner one night, in my honor, actually. And I sat next to a young second secretary at the embassy whose name was David Cornwell. I'd never met him before, obviously. He was very charming, very nice, and I liked him a lot. I have no idea what we talked about. What I didn't know was he had just finished a novel called The Spy Who Came In From the Cold and was about to leave the Secret Service because he was in the embassy undercover, he wasn't a second secretary in the Foreign Office. He was the MI6 station chief in West Germany. But I didn't know that, and he didn't tell me that, obviously. But he did actually leave the Secret Service once the novel was published, and it became a worldwide bestseller, made him rich, turned into a movie with Richard Burton, and he became John le Carre, the famous author.
1: That's a great story. Um, I came in and I said it's Halloween, Day Mask, and you said it's also the Day of the Dead. And it is that, right? It's All Souls Day, yep. which is a holiday that's actually rooted in humility and love, in that we honor the people who've gone before us, who we loved and, and we, we don't think about from day to day. But today, at least in theory, it's, it's not about candy. It's about that. The Kare, who recently passed, the, the interesting message at the end of that last book is politics can't be trusted. Right. But, but the, one thing, the one thing that's worth living for is your heart. Love. Is love.
0: The only, the only eternal value really is love. Love of country is a false value. It won't lead you anywhere good. No, but it is a beautiful book.
1: There's a spareness that these masters get toward the end. DeLillo has it. Scorsese doesn't. Um, where the constraint maybe of waning energy brings out a, a certain kind of aesthetic beauty.
0: Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. It's stripped down to the bone, actually. Right. It's very, very spare. Um, it's the it's, minimalism of, t- of time. But it's very, very beautiful. And as you said before, uh, politics will get you nowhere. Ideology will get you nowhere. I mean, the, the anti-hero of the book is a Pole, and he once worked as a, his father was a Nazi— well, no,
1: Peter, I would I say the book is so good. I don't think we're giving anything away because it's not a conventional spy novel. No, it's not. It's You're a, not right.
0: no, It's not a plot. It's you don't read it for the plot. There is no plot. You can tell on page three what's going to happen. But
1: that's unique in the genre. So, so continue because it it's a special I mean, book.
0: You, you can tell what's going to happen. You, I mean, it's obvious. It was obvious to me very right from the start. You know, but basically, the man, the antihero, as I call him, is a Pole living in England who has been working for the British. Having once worked for Moscow, he was turned in, you know, in, in, in Poland from a communist into an anti-communist, came to Britain, married a member of the Secret Service herself, a rich woman, and he became a British spy. And then he betrayed Britain for love. And the British are now after him, but he's not going to be caught. And it's a very beautiful story. Yeah. And it doesn't have an ending, really. I mean, it has, it has a moral ending because John Le Carre was nothing Well, the, it's not it's, a moralist.
1: It's the choice of the ending, that, which maybe we shouldn't give away. But the, what Le Carre chooses to allow the ending to be, given his career and his genre, is actually quite radical and fascinating. It Even is. though you're right, it's, for the genre, it's not much of an ending. It's actually a radical ending. It is a radical ending. It's I mean, a radical you're, ending.
0: You're right, you're right, you're right. It's a radical ending. But, you know, it's not his greatest novel. His greatest novel is A Perfect Spy, which is autobiographical. His father was a con man and a criminal and a psychopath, John Le Carre's father. So his whole life, his mother abandoned the family when John Le Carre was five, and the father was a criminal who used his two sons, David Cornwell and his brother, as a, as kind of accomplices, in the various crimes that he committed. The thing that John le Carre's father wanted most for John le Carre, the son, was to become an English gentleman. And the whole point of going to a public school, what we in England call a public school, which you call a prep school, he went to Sherborne, a different kind of school from Westminster, but nevertheless, it was a famous public school. And the old idea was to send his son David there in order to turn David into an English gentleman. And David Cornwall was a fraud. He wasn't an English gentleman, but he was able, he was a brilliant mimic. He was they able to. He made him put, a
1: great spy.
0: He made him a great spy. Yes. But he was he was also, you know, he basically saw through the whole thing. Uh, he didn't buy it. Daniel Day
1: Lewis, whose father was a great poet, C. Day Lewis, yeah. who died. And so I guess I don't know, the family was in straitened circumstances. And Daniel Day Lewis had grown up in very posh circles or cultured yeah, circles yeah, yeah, yeah. but went to a school that was more of a middle-class school and learned to do a middle-class accent and that th- so was born one of the great actors of the 20th and 21st centuries
0: well, it's interesting D- David Cornwell would have made a great actor and a great actor a great, and a great, great
1: spy have similar skills
0: great mimic and if you look at his interviews early in his career to John le Carre's accent early in his career he was incredibly posh, rather like mine. I have a stupidly posh accent because I'm the son of immigrants from Nazi-occupied Europe. But the fact is, John Le Carre had my accent. But later in his life, he changed his accent. He became much less posh. And, of course, at the very end, this is the kicker. I mean, he, he lived for Europe. He thought the only point of England was to be part of Europe. And once Britain Brexited, And left Europe, he lost all faith in the country, withdrew his last vestige of support for the country he'd been born in, and became an Irish citizen because his grandmother was Irish. Did he really? Yes, he became an Irish citizen... And he became a,
1: you know, he he did that with great glee. uh, Did he live in the country in Ireland or in a city? He never lived in Ireland. He just
0: did it. I mean, I became an Austrian citizen.
1: You did recently? After
0: Brexit, yes. So he became... So do you you
1: regard yourself as being half as British as you were prior to your Austrian passport?
0: Less British than I was before. Yeah. And John Le had the same feeling. It is said that if he had had his way, he would have become German. Because John Le ran away from Sherbourne when he was 16 and went to Bern in Switzerland, where he spoke no German, but he went to Bern University to learn German. And why did he do that? Well, he explained it in various ways. He basically did it because he needed a mother. And he wa- and German culture he admired. He'd read all sorts of books, German books, Goethe, and so on. And he believed that Germany was, in some ways, a place where he could feel at home. And at the very end of the cycle of novels, not quite the last novel, but one of the last novels. His great hero, Smiley, who ran the Secret Service, a pudgy, intellectual, unglamorous, anti-James Bond figure, brilliant. Um, Smiley, we find Smiley at the end living in Freiburg in Germany, where he was doing some academic work. He'd left England disillusioned.
1: Hmm.
0: So the idea of loyalty To nation, which ran through my life, because I didn't know who I was. I didn't think I was English, but I certainly didn't think I was Austrian or German either in my early days. I didn't want to be German or Austrian. I wanted to be something.
1: You wanted to be something.
0: Yeah, I wanted to be something. I wanted to be a citizen of somewhere rather than a citizen of nowhere.
1: Is that how you felt your whole life?
0: Yes. John Le Carre used the same phrase, I discovered. Citizen of nowhere comes into Silverview, the last novel. It must have been Lonely. Well, it was in a way. Of course it was. I had to construct a false identity. Which changed through time. Which changed through time. Now... How did it change? I be- never felt more English, or never tried to be more English, is a better way to put it. Than in New York? Then No, then, no, than then when I was at Westminster. I came to New York to escape the dilemma of who I was.
1: But the irony is that every time that you spoke in New York, you were, to the observers, the most English thing around. Yes, but
0: no one in New York is anybody... I mean, it's a city. It's a citizen. It's a city and full of people, who are basically from everywhere and nowhere. They they call themselves Americans. They call themselves New Yorkers. But to be a New Yorker is a very different thing from being English.
1: Do you feel that you that you became a New Yorker? Do you feel like a New Yorker?
0: Yes, you do, but only partly. Only, I mean, partly. I don't, only partly. I don't really. I mean, I don't know the Dodgers. I mean, sorry, the Dodgers are in Los Angeles. I don't know the Yankees. I don't know the. Um, the fact is, I'm not really a New Yorker. I'm an arriviste from somewhere else, but this city is filled with people like me. So I came to New York partly to escape. And, uh, you know, the fact is, after Brexit, my desire to become something different, because I couldn't be a European anymore uh, unless I did something about it, and the Austrian government offered me, they wrote to me, and they said, You're a victim of Brexit. And you are also descendant of victims of the Nazis. And because of those two facts, we are offering you Austrian citizenship. Would you like it? And I said, yes. I thought about it. I thought of what they'd done to my father and my family. But I thought, why not? And so I've done it.
1: I've been buying a lot of muesli in hopes of finding such an offer at the bottom of the box. But (laughs) that operation has yet to succeed. I like that.